A quick heads up that there are descriptions of physical and sexual abuse coming up in this episode. Thank you everyone for tuning into the Cashew Podcast today. I am speaking with Linda Eagle Speaker. Linda, how are you doing? Oh, pretty good. All things considered during COVID. Yeah. And could you introduce yourself and share a little bit about yourself? Uh, and what I said in my language, which is uh, Blackfeet, I'm a member of the Blackfoot Confederacy, and I, in my language I said, Oki, that means hello to your spirit. And that's not saying hi or hello. We say more than that. Our words are very expressive. So I said, I said hello, uh, all of my relations. I hold that name. I'm the seventh generation to hold that name. And the name that I carry is, when you translate that name, it's holy, medicine, shining woman. I carry that name for this generation. I am, do not own that name. I just hold it in place until the next generation, a ceremonial herbalist, amongst my family is going to be found, and then we'll transfer the name. Beautiful. Well, and thank you. Thank you for taking some time to talk with me. You know, when I thought of thought of you, I, I thought of how comforting and, and gentle you are with everyone and everything you do. I thought of um, healing and how we take care of ourselves, it, you know, during how we take care of ourselves always, but especially during more difficult times like now when we're navigating this pandemic. And so, yeah, so I I wanted to talk with you today a little bit about yourself and and the really important work you do and the ways you you teach many of us how to heal and, and take care of each other. And I know there is a meditation that you'd like to start us off with would you like to share a little bit about this meditation and and then we can go right into it whenever you're ready well the meditation began as a western model and uh, myself and another elder donna chapelle we we indigenized the whole process and so um the meditation is called soft belly and we translate that into our ojibwe and our and our blackfoot ways and and the way of understanding is that um, we translate that soft belly meditation into uh, baby's breath. We watch our babies closely when they're first born, and for the first, oh, about the first three months of their lives, before this little spot on the top of their head closes together, that's a strong connection to the Creator and still keeps that connection. But once that begins to close, that soft spot disappears, our 
our babies before that, what they'll do is they'll, they'll breathe in deeply through their nose. They'll hold for a moment and then they'll exhale through their mouth. And they continue that breath. By learning that breath in their firstborn, it's their gift. It's their first gift of life. And the babies will continue to breathe like that until about, about three months. And we as human beings, we, we change right about that time. We no longer use our mouths to breathe or exhale. We do everything through these two little holes, eh? And that's why we get so stressed because we're so busy during the day and we're doing everything we can and, we're, and work and families and careers and everything else. But if you think about that breath, that's just two little places that are going in and out in and out, and we, we become fearful. So in the, the Western way, you would say that you're, you're either in flight or fight, or you're in freeze. Um, so what I'm gonna teach you is it's, I refer to it as baby's breath. We'll just do a few short, deep breaths. Uh, the first thing I want you to do is I just want you to get grounded in your chair if you're sitting there. I want you to take off your glasses and put them down. And then what I want you to do is just take your hands and just put them here right on your knees and just ever so slowly, just gently close your eyes. Listen to my voice. Become aware of your breath, your normal breath now that sustained you. Breathing in and out. Feeling that oxygen just kind of flowing as you breathe in. That short breath as you breathe out again. And you notice that beautiful flow and that's, that's, that's how we live. That's how we survive every moment of our day. But I want to teach you something that'll, that'll bring you comfort. It'll teach you to understand how stress hides in your body and how you can use your breath to just grab onto it and, and, and pull it out. I'm going to do five breaths, only five, but what I want you to do is we're going to take our first breath. I want you to breathe, inhale deeply through your nose. Pause for a moment. Open your mouth slightly and just breathe, exhale. Second breath. Deep, deep, deep. Inhale through your nose. Exhale. Continue the next breath listening to my voice. When we breathe in as human beings, we are tapping that oxygen all the way goes to the back and goes around to the back and it just taps into this life-giving nerve. It's called your vagus nerve. So when that air comes in, it comes all the way to the back and instinctively just goes to the front 
amygdala, all the way to the frontal cortex, bringing that fresh air there to clean your mind out. Good thoughts. The air continues all the way down, following that vagus nerve, the wandering nerve as it wanders through your lungs, your heart. That air goes all the way down, travels all the way down to the very pit of your stomach. If you're doing your breathing correctly, you'll feel that air go all the way down and you'll feel your stomach kind of come out like a rubber ball. That means all the air is getting down there. And the second thing I want you to do is when you begin to breathe, I want you to think about somewhere in your body there's hurt, there's trauma, there's stiffness. On the inhale, I want you to bring your breath right there. It could be something on your shoulder, on your back. It could be something that's, that's hurting up here. So let's take that breath, take that deep breath in and bring it right to that spot in your body where that discomfort is at. In that pause, wrap that around, that discomfort. Hold on to it tight with your breath. And when we breathe out, exhale it out. You don't need it. Shake it. Let it go. Throw it on the ground. Literally just take it and just throw it. Every time you do that, every time you breathe and you bring it into your hands, that is trauma. Hold it tight so it doesn't escape. Last breath. Deep, deep breath in. And exhale. Center yourself again. Bring yourself back. thoughts come, let them come. Take what you need from them and put everything back on a little cloud and let it float by. It'll come back around. And right now, just gently, ever so gently, notice that body awareness. You're coming back. Move your arms a little bit, your hands. Move your head a little bit. And when you're ready, just slowly, slowly begin to open your eyes and look around. If you've got that feeling of uh, tiredness or sleepiness, it's your body sending you signals. Even to rest, even to, um, especially in your office environment, sometimes it's, if you just sit back, and turn off the screen and just do those five breaths by yourself, bringing it in really, really, really deep. Our people are, are, are really skilled at hiding trauma. And trauma moves. You know, sometimes it's in your neck. Trauma moves all the way to your back. It, trauma is, is, is like an entity that, that just doesn't want to leave you. It, it's comfortable there especially that old, old, old trauma. Uh, that goes a little bit deeper. But that breath work can bring it. 
when you're practicing this breath, you'll do it ex just instinctively, automatically. I do it when I when I sit on the edge of my bed in the morning. I'll do it mid-afternoon. I practice up to the point right now, like if I, I will do 10 breaths. Um, if I feel any stress in my body, I'll actually do 20. And they're, and they're very intense. So if your body is just naturally feeling like it's tired, that's a signal. Just to close your eyes for a moment, close this off, and just breathe. Miigwech, thank you for that. That beautiful meditation, I'm all loosened up and calm. I hope others that are listening find that helpful and are able to use it as a, a daily practice or tool for themselves. Yeah, little children are especially, wow, they can really, they live in that world too, though. And, and then us as adults, we, we try to live in that world that they live in, but I, I find when I do trainings for children, it's just phenomenal. Well, and you know, trauma, you know, is, is coming up and we're talking about it. And we know, um, I mean, in our community and many other communities that there's historical trauma and, and trauma we've carried with us for centuries. And there's... Uh, trauma, you know, present day trauma, active trauma still happening, and that many, many people, whether children or adults are, they may be um, re-experiencing trauma right now, like maybe um, it's being triggered or reactivated or just experiencing new trauma and during this pandemic. And and so um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, of course, and, and I, I know so much of your work again is around healing and how we heal those heal that trauma and and I wonder if if you are willing to share a little bit I know you are a survivor yourself and you have um, personal experience when we thinking of so for our center um, a primary audience of ours are frontline child welfare workers or other providers who also intersect and support children and families involved with the child welfare system. And then there are others who are just interested and curious and want to know more. Um, but I wonder if you could share some of what your personal experience with trauma, being a survivor, and then how that maybe has impacted or led to some of the, your life's work that you've done um, and continue to do today. I'll, I'll, I'll begin by... Uh, letting you know, I, I just turned 65 years old. Uh, most of my life, I was I was raised in southern Alberta and Canada. And if I wasn't there, then I was in um, Montana, um, where my grandmother lives, my mother's people. And, uh, you know, I, I go back there sometimes. And uh, I can let you know that... Uh, on both my maternal and my paternal sides um, are three generations. So on both sides, it would be my grandmother's and my great-grandmother on my mom's side and on the Montana side. So um, they were brought to, so it would be my great-grandmother, my grandmother, and my mom. And uh, luckily for us, it stopped in Montana with my mom. Um, 
and that's quite a while ago because my mom passed away two years ago and she was over 100 years old. Um, so it goes way, way, way back into the uh, late 1800s for my family. Uh, really, we were uh, indentured servants uh, when I talk about it. And even on my dad's side, uh, back in those late 1800s, they would still take the children um, and they, and they would bring them in, but they would just, uh, the farmers would come and the ranchers would come and their wives and uh, they would line all the young ones up and um, the strong ones would be go to farmers or ranchers. Um, I'm speaking about my, my uh, grandfathers on, on, on both sides. So that would be during their era. Um, so during that time, they were just chosen and uh, they were taken away. And uh, my grandfather in Canada was about uh, 14 years uh, with his one family. Um, they were never paid. Um, they were just labor. Uh, my grandmothers are usually, our grandmothers are usually chosen to be, um, you know, I, I sometimes think about it. It's kind of similar to what happened to the people in the South. Um, when the slaves were first brought over, they, I, it's kind of similar to that, Like, a, except we're not paying a dollar amount for them. We're not paying anything for us. Um, and we don't get paid. Um, so that's that's the first uh, generation to go in on, on both sides. Um, and they lived many, many years. And they'll tell you that uh, my grandfather on the Mon Montana side, uh, um, talking about 16 years, uh, then it rolls into the it rolls into the next generation. Uh, that would be my mother and my father. Uh, my father went in uh, when he was seven years old. Um, he went into in Canada. It was an Anglican uh, residential boarding school. There's two um, candidates, usually Anglicans or Catholics. Uh, so my father went in seven years old, and he didn't come out until he was almost 15 when they let him go. Uh, my mother went in uh, almost 12 years. Um, she was uh, uh, fared a lot better because she was, uh, she was a matron to the, um, to the father, to the, fam the priest family that, that run the, the whole thing, so she fared a little better. Um, for me, uh, I have nine siblings, and uh, seven of us are survivors. Um, and it varies in different years, but we all um, went to the same school. Um, myself, I was five and a half, and it was my turn to go. Um, I left my family and I didn't see my parents for about six years, almost six years, um, all that time in a, a boarding school um, called St. Paul's, uh, Southern Alberta. You know, I survived. I'm here talking to you. That's what I say, I survived. I saw horrific things in there and uh, witnessed to a lot of child abuse, and a lot of child sexual abuse, and a lot of loneliness. Uh, above anything else, it was very lonely. Uh, 
uh, especially the first few years. Uh, and I, and I kind of relate that to my ICWA work. Uh, when a mother would always ask me or she'd be angry and she'd say, you have no idea what it means to, for my child to be taken away. I wish I could tell her, but I didn't. I just supported her. All those years, um, no contact with my parents. Um, we were really, really segregated in there, so I never got a chance to see my brothers. Uh, males on one side and female on the other. Uh, we never really got a chance to mingle with the, we were called the juniors on the very top, intermediates and seniors on the bottom according to age, but we were not allowed to uh, mingle with each other, uh, be in the playground. Um, I think just a lot of, a lot of those memories, those of those things, you know, I I was a, I was a real fighter. Uh, it's a promise I made to my grandfather, Charlie. Uh, told me he he didn't he didn't want to tell me, hey, but my my parents couldn't tell me I was going, so my grandfather did, and he told me to be strong. He told me try not to cry. Cry alone by yourself and pray. Help the little ones. I never understood what he meant by help the little ones. I was a little one. I'm only five and a half, but I'm going. But once I got there, I, I knew. I, I learned fast. Uh, really, you, you know, you, you just speak Blackfoot. And so you learn English really fast. And I have my arthritis in my hands right now. But I have a lot of memories where I slipped up and I, I spoke Blackfoot. And, uh, you always get it, eh? Put your hands out like this. I preferred like this rather than that. And we learned not to do this. Uh, you know, get broken fingers and stuff, right? So we learned how to do this. And we would take it like that. You know, I, I, I went in... I went in fast and came out just as fast. Uh, I just remember I had a rheumatic fever while I was in there. And, uh, and I, I told you that I was really, really strong. Uh, and so in our dormitory, there was a, our first year, we had this beautiful, oh, a, a Sister Angelique, I'll never forget her. She was so kind and gentle, and she'd sneak up to our dorm and she'd bring us apples or a cookie. Uh, she would read to us. But she was there the first year, and the next year she was gone. I always thought in my heart all these years that it was because of her kindness. And then we got a, a male nurse. Um, I didn't know then, but I know now exactly what a pedophile is. And I fought him. And I fought him with these. As a little child, I, I fought him. I have six documented injuries where I was brought to the hospital. Um, I've broken both collarbones and ribs and uh, broken leg once and broken foot. Um, not, I'm just trying to stop him, you know, hiding in the dark on my bed. And as he'd go by with a little one, I would get fierce like a bear, like 
I jump on him and I hold on to his hair like this, going back and forth. But I'd be being carried out the doors and then I'm just tossed down the stairs. So so I sustained a lot of injuries. Interesting though, now that I'm old, that I would be brought to the hospital. I'd be patched up, but I'd be brought back. Uh, I would tell them, don't send me back. This is happening. So I, I survived all those years and I came back out. Six of us. Six of us little girls that went in with the 40. There was 40 of us upstairs. Six didn't make it home. And their, their mothers are still searching for five of them. Uh, one of them was located uh, because there was witness where she was buried. Um, and there were, you know, there were, there were times like we didn't have toys. She come to my house, I have the huge collection of bears and little miniatures. Um, yeah, I think that's about it for now. Yeah, I mean, oh, thank you for sharing. I, I imagine you have shared and been, you know, had been vulnerable in many moments and being willing to share your story. And I appreciate you sharing it now. And, you know, it's hard to hear. And, but I think it's important. It's, you know, so many people still don't know that this has happened to so many of our, our people everywhere. And, and so many people don't understand or know how that has how that those experiences have passed on trauma for generations to follow, right? And that we have uh, parents and caregivers today, you know, that have been in, that still carried that with them, and um, and it shows in different ways, and the loss, um, the loss of culture and language at that time, you know, all of that, and. Um, and how we see that manifest and show in our communities and our families today. And we are very strong, resilient in so many ways, but that there are challenges due to that, those experiences. Um, in part, you know, there were, there's much more than just the boarding school piece of it. Um, and I know when we talked before too, you shared, you know, when you first moved to Minnesota, I believe you moved right to Minneapolis, um, you can correct me, um, that you saw, like, I, I just remember you speaking about for, um, like, urban Indian communities sometimes, um, and for sometimes families in urban areas, there is even more so a loss of sometimes culture, language, ceremony, because of geography and because our, our tribal communities are northern, you know, indifferent, we're away from, we're off that land. Um, but you, you had shared that you saw some of that in, in families when you first moved here and, and you were beginning, starting your work here in the child welfare kind of child protection area. Um, I don't know if you want to share a little bit about, yeah, the work that you had been doing and kind of how what your work with child protection that the system has looked like too. I think that uh, 
you're refer referring to a conversation that we had about when we first began this this project and um you know coming from a reservation and, and um relearning my language thank thank goodness because of my parents and um because of the fact that they actually sent us away we we came home for only seven days but uh we we, we never went into the house and we were really really lucky to have my Blackfeet uh, family. And so my great-grandmother and my grandmother came for us on the seventh day, and that was our salvation. We went way outside of, across the border to Browning and 28 miles out there, rarely came to town. That's why I learned how to, all those things again about medicines. But you know, when I, when I arrived here all oh, but 15 years ago at half now, I, uh, my first job as a social worker was intensive in-home um, where I was assigned 12 families. And I literally went into shock. I couldn't believe uh, the, the dysfunction of the home. Of the, there was no family unit. Everybody was just there kind of surviving. Uh, minute by minute, hour by hour, and uh, I'm trying to do an intake, and I'm, I'm asking, what is your tribe, and well, what kind of guessing? Uh, someone told me my grandmother was from here, or a relative told me that they were from here. Uh, so that tells me you're not enrolled. If you're not enrolled in your tribe, then there's so much disconnection. And so what I found, and I went back to my supervisor, Lorraine White at the time, and I, and I asked her, and um, she said, help them, help them to find themselves. So I would have to say for that first three months was uh, just that tribal identification, finding out who your tribe is. So connecting all of my families to who they are, to their reservation, to their people, because once you find all that, then you begin to find out what are customs, what are traditions, what are ceremonies. I'm an, I'm, I'm not from a Madewan. Those are my people. Um, I'm Navajo, I'm Arapaho. Each one of us having individual ceremonies. So I think this, they just felt so lost and deflated when I first went in. And um, what was really, really shocking to my ear was, um, the disrespect between the young children, the young ones, and the elders, there was none. Uh, I, I remember distinctly a young girl. Uh, she lived with grandma and, and her mom. And I uh, was waiting to speak with her, just to do an intake. And I just remember she walked in, and she was all dressed in red and white. And um, she walked in, she threw her bag down, she looked at her mom and ordered her around to the kitchen. And then she looked at me and she said, uh, what are you doing here, Biash? Oh, I didn't even know that was a cuss word. Apparently so. <laughs> I never gave up on her. Never. Never. When she would call me and give me a hard time to pick her up at school, I'm there. Never gave up on that girl. And about uh, two years ago, I get a call on the phone. Grandma, it's me. I'm convocating. 
I'm graduating from Osberg. Can you be there, Grandma? Uh, no, I made it. If you're just standing there, you never gave up on me. I can tell you that all those 12 families, none of them went into child protection. So that's that's just what I wanted to do. I, I That was my next career, was to go full throttle and accept uh, our position for ICWA Collaborative Coordinator. My family caseload was like about <laughs> 30 families. <laughs> Jumped from 12 all the way up automatically to 30. So I... Um, that was a different, different coordinator completely. When I would, uh, I'd communicate with the investigators. I knew them really well. They all still know me. Um, they're faxing me the chips. But what I would do is I would, I would look at the chips and I would highlight the address and the telephone number and family, and I would make a call. I'm coming over to visit you. I want your family there. I want your grandmas, I want your aunties that are loud, I want all of them that are there to support you. And I like tea, by the way. I'm coming over. And we would come over and we'd brainstorm. What just happened? Maybe the young couple sitting there. Kids are out of the home. Make sure they're there, both of them. But the number one question I'd always ask Maybe the third question I want to know right now, I want all the aunties and their grandmas and everybody that's in this room, brothers, sisters, cousins, everybody that's here, I want you to rate their chemical dependency. One being the least and 10 being the most severe. And be honest. I did that so much that after a while I made cards from one to 10. And they would just hold up the card. But in most cases, it would always be 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. Who better to know the chemical dependency than their own family? Who better to help them? And so then we'd begin, who's going to go to court with us? Who's going to get a hold of kinship and let them know that there's all these families that can, can help out? Who's going to do transport? And she or he needs to get to groups and all of that. We're going to do this as a family, and we're going to get those kids back. But that's that's some of the things that I, I, you know, it just always comes back to our people. It comes back to that, you know, that disconnect of, of, of that missing identity. We are unique. We are unique human beings. We are indigenous to this continent. And we need to hold on to that with, with great pride for our children and fight for them as much as we can. But at the same time, too, we are all human beings. And so when I'd, I'd go down to court, I would, I would meet the child protection workers, child service workers, the judges, all of them. They all, all of them knew me. But I remember my very first court hearing I went to, and I, I walked in with the mom. And everybody was in a little huddle, but she sat over here. We're making these decisions for her, for her kids, for this, and, and, and she would just sit there. So I, I remember I got up and I went over there, introduced myself, and uh, I said, I hear all of this noise about 
She's this and she's that and she's everything. She's going to fail. She's going to do this. We have to overwork ourselves. All of that. Do you realize that you're talking about her and she can hear you? She's a human being. You help me and we'll help. I want you to bring this a little bit over here. Closer. Mm -hmm. I think one of the last things that I was really successful was introduced to um, a meeting, a family meeting that happens after the court hearings now. And that started off with the very beginnings, like what just happened? And now it, it's taken place by the family group conferencing people that come down and I'm, and I love that. I love that where they go in and, and okay, now what happened? Who can do what? They love all of that. So I think all my experiences, my surviving of everything that I did and, and coming through all of this is, is, has helped me to understand what is child abuse when they talk about it. What is child sexual abuse? A little one has been sexually abused. But we need to hold and, and help the whole nuclear family. Okay? Because we know that those are learned behaviors. He just didn't, he wasn't born a sex offender. Could be immediate family, could be a brother amongst the family. He wasn't born like that. They're made like that. So getting the family to understand and, and being able to help all of that. But at the same time, too, being strong enough to support when called upon in really severe cases where I support termination of parental rights. And then with the tribe, suspension of parental rights. If a child is, for me, when a little child is beaten, have to, you know, skin of his life, uh, Another one doesn't need to go back there. Um, no matter how much you train that person. And then if a little child is in your home and you knowingly know that little one has been sexually abused and it goes on without being reported, I'm going to do everything in my power as a mother and a grandmother to remove that little child. And sometimes we, we have to do that. And we have to support the tribe, and we have to support the workers, and we have to support termination, which comes along with that big trial situation. <laughs> Been on the stands many, many times over my career. So I wonder, as we've talked about trauma, we've talked about historical trauma and how that just carried on, and many are still carrying that with them today, how there's new traumas that... Um, parents and caregivers are experiencing, that children have experienced, and then we're in a pandemic, <laughs> right, where this is a whole nother kind of trauma um, for many, or there may be things happening in families that are triggering past traumas and all of that. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts or if you're supporting other kind of, you know, um, frontline providers through your work on how to best support families right now and like even the smallest ways you know like what does that engagement look like when we're virtually um interviewing kids about potential abu alleged abuse or if it's like supporting 
a parent and a child visitation via Zoom, if that's even a possibility for that family, or, um, you know, um, collaborating and connecting with community providers during this time to best support families. Um, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts of just like, how do we, how do we continue to support families right now? And what does that engagement look like and and, and being gentle and, and, and kind and um, mindful of where people are at and, and what they've been through and what they're experiencing right now? You know, I, I came home, but I, I immediately knew that as soon as I started getting in calls from, from our agency alone, because we were going through transition, which we still are, but I, from the family home workers and eco workers and, and how can we continue our work and, and what can we do that we can help our families. And that was also coming in not only from my agency, but also from American Indian Family Center and their youth groups, uh, work closely with them. Uh, also over there at Indigenous People's Task Force, work closely with those, the youth group, you know, Kittigwin players and uh, do a lot of mind-body medicine with them also too. Mm -hmm. And also too, I do a lot of work with the DIW uh, youth group. So we were kind of um, between those three agencies and, and, and here being um, in a virtual world, how can I, how can I help the children? And for me, it was going back to what I was taught as a child, medicines, prayer. Uh, so what I did is I sat down one early morning and I, and I prayed and I uh, made offering and how can I help these children? In what way can I help these children? Because they're different ages and some are in care and some aren't in care and some are just with their families and some of them are in good homes and some aren't in good homes. and. So with that power of prayer, one of the things I, I did is I went back to my office and I collected all of my medicines. Um, I collected all, all of my sage and my sweetgrass. Uh, I make traditional tobacco um, and, and cedar. And so what I did is I came home and I began to make uh, prayer kits. And it's just a prayer kit just... Uh, and all it is, is very, very simple. It just has, uh, it's a plastic bag. It has the, it has sage and it has flat cedar. It has uh, traditional tobacco and also sweet grass. And I even put in there some little uh, box stick matches. And then I also, uh, whatever program it's gonna go to, um, I also put on a um, two page thing on what is prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is silent. Uh, prayer is through your eyes. Prayer, you can just stand there and, and be quiet. You don't need to be loud or in a big, huge speaker. And, and you can pray to yourself. So as individuals, uh, we're going through this on our own. And so when we, we teach them to open up the kit, we teach them to take the sage and smudge with it. And what is grandma sage and where does it come from? We take grandma cedar out. We take grandma sweetgrass. We take 
uh, grandma tobacco right there. And we teach them what this means. So when you're out there and you're feeling really bad, maybe you're on a walk, open this up. So fragrant. People have, are, we've been making tobacco for thousands of years. And you just worry, let it, put that worry in that tobacco and, and, and let it go on the wind. Even with your walking out with your children, but it teaches them to pray. And then I made these. Uh, these are what they call four direction tie kits. And it's, it's, it contains, it's, a, it's to teach diversity. It's to teach uh, about cultures and all. Really, if we say that uh, we teach our children the four directions, do we? Really? Do we teach them that each one of these colors in here, yellow, represents all the oriental cultures of the world? Hmong, Japanese, all of them. Black, representing all the black cultures of the world. White represents all European cultures of the world that came across to find us. Red represents all indigenous people in this continent and uh, another continent. But what you do is you, you teach them that the significance of the cultures and that we are, we are equal to each other. We are no greater than each other. And that's one of the lessons that we teach. So I'm going to be doing this for the MIWC Learning Center. Uh, we're going to do a series of uh, 10 videos, but it won't be just myself. The, the first two will be me, uh, but we want to do uh, videos also too, an hour-long video of um, other healers in the community and, and, and their work too. Um, that'll be on the uh, loaded onto our site okay. and accessible to everybody. Yeah, and that's the Minnesota yeah. Indian Women's Resource Center website, right? right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, and and two, um, I don't know if you have already worked on projects that are available on this, or if you have recommendations that we could also link to, just around um, our medicines. You know, I know you do so much around medicines and harvesting and healing with medicines and our traditional medicines. And I think of, you know, there are many folks that don't know how to do that, where to start um, or what that even means. And, and especially for an urban area, sometimes we don't, we don't know uh, where to go pick, you know, where to gather cedar and what's maybe the appropriate way to do that. And so if, if you have any suggestions or if you have any existing resources around kind of some of the medicines we can gather here locally and taking care of ourselves that we could share, mm -hmm. um, that that feels okay to you, you know, that we could do that sure. too. Yesterday afternoon, I was, I was uh, well, about penned in, hey? Um, so my husband and I, we took a drive up, up, up on 35W and then I reported back to everybody, all the herbalists and everyone that uh, the sage is about that high around Stacy and Wyoming, mm. uh, as you get a little bit closer to Hugo and your dreamer around how that it gets about to maybe two inches. So um, just reporting that out to all of the herbalists and, and they were also sending me messages about uh, they wanted to find certain certain medicines. Linda, if you find this, uh, can you get me some? Uh, we always help each other out 
when we're out there uh, foraging, eh? So I was able to go out there and I was able to let all the different herbalists know that we're about a month out uh, on actually sage really, really coming uh, forward, eh? Mm -hmm. So what I what I do for like at our at our agency, um, just get ready to start a new project. It was just a little mini grant, and it was a what they call a, a grow shed grant. Eh? I love that. I love that. <laughs> and it's actually a, a grow shed on wheels that's built for you. It's it's hydroponic, um, and that's something I want to. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm mentoring um, two of our younger ones in our program to take that on. Uh, you know, we'll be there in the background for different stuff. Uh, but I want you to take the lead. Uh, and then I'm going to incorporate that and, and bringing in um, the gardeners from Indigenous Peoples Task Force. And there's two that are, are really specialized in hydroponics. So that's the future for our young ones, eh? So we'll give that staff the opportunity to do that. We'll We'll collaborate with the Indigenous Peoples Task Force. We're going to use it as a teaching tool for our programs and our young girls and our youth. Um, it's going to be for our garden warriors upstairs that live in our apartments so that they can come down. Eh? So we're really being inventive with the different grants. Um, I think the newest grant that I'm so, so proud to be able to receive that grant, uh, healers from all over Minnesota and that area and I know that there's five urban uh, urban agencies that have that have been offered this grant, traditional healer grant, uh, first of its kind, uh, and that's thanks to Governor Waltz and our Lieutenant Governor recognizing our abilities for the very first time and really, really being paid for what we actually do, rather than being paid by this grant, that grant, restrictions and. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to begin in June. So um, mentoring that, and I love that part of the grant that um, I'm going to reach that point. I'm 65, so maybe a good another five years out of me. But uh, that grant will give me an opportunity to mentor. And I've selected a young lady that's just phenomenal in the community. Uh, she worked in our treatment program, and her name is uh, Sheila Jeffair. And so Sheila is a sun dancer. So um, I'll be teaching her about the different medicines and a little bit more detail. So she accepted. She accepted. I'm uh, quite proud that we're going to be working together. I have another young lady. Uh, she's just coming through our programs and she's uh, in a lot of ways a survivor herself. She will be the one that's going to be instrumental in leading for the grow shed. At first, she was really, really scared. I said, no, no, you were, you were rescued and you were by the county and they found you and they brought you to your grandma and your grandma, your grandma's best friend next door was a medicine woman. And that's why you learned all of that. Don't hide it. So it has all these opportunities there to be able to that's our responsibilities of elders is to pass these things on and not hold on to all of them, eh? So I'm really looking forward to this grant. I'm just working on the last little bits of this and this and that. Um, a lot of our agencies, because of this grant, we're going to be able to take care of our sacred items that we haven't been able to, uh, like 
cleaning up our, our agency staff and having that done. If we have drums, getting them rattles, all of that. Uh, as well, there's going to be uh, dollars in there, so I'll be able to bring in elder elders uh, from other agencies and other ones from that we haven't been able to. We want to bring somebody down from Canada, too. I like that. I'm really looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. That's really exciting. And for people who maybe aren't clear, too, is that this grant is really allowing and finally opening it up from what you're saying, the opportunity to use our traditional ways and ways of healing and our medicines as as healing, you know, like in, in practice in these programs and not just the westernized, you know, forms of treatment and, and supporting mental health and chemical dependency and that there's actually some some recognition and actual financial support to do that healing work. Yeah, I'll be bringing, uh, like I always do, uh, every season, uh, starting in June, I'll, um, I bring out the women from the treatment program. Um, I have special permission to bring them out there, bag lunch, and, um, and I also bring out the women from the Healing Journeys program. And uh, while I'm out there, you know, we meet them where they're at. Make no judgments. Accept them the way that they are. Can't change another human being, but we can help them. And I remember last year when I brought out Healing Journeys, and some of them were scared because they, they hear so many misconceptions about, you know, I'm this way or that way, so I can't touch sage. And, oh, that's when you need it the most. Uh, so I, what I do with mine, I'll bring maybe 10 ladies out there and we go way out there and we, I teach them what, what we're going to do. But I always make sure that I give them a round ball of sage, a big one. And then I ask them, I tell them, when you're out there and things come to you in your memories, somebody had hurt you. Maybe somebody talked to you or somebody is in your life that you're having a hard time with. I don't want you to stop picking stage. I want you to take this while you're picking and you hold it. Whenever you feel something coming on that's so strong, I want you to stand up. I want you to hold that sage and I want you to move it up towards the creator. And I'll see you from afar. I'll know that you know how to pray now. You know how to ask for help. Offer that sage. Help me. Help me, grandfathers. Help me. And it's so amazing that I'll be watching everybody in the field. And every now and then a, a woman will stand up. And she doesn't look for help this way or that way. She knows she can help herself. She knows that. And she'll raise her hand. We don't need to rush to her. She knows she needs to be able to breathe through it, which we've already taught her. And then her hand will go down, and she'll go back to picking. We usually pick about four hours. Have a nice slice lunch while we're out there and teach them about other medicines too. So I do that for both adults and kids. No, oh, thank you so much, Linda. I really appreciate your time and and being able to, to see you. You know, I know our listeners mm -hmm. can't see you, but it's so good to talk to you today and just hear 
you know, just a little bit of your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience. And I really, really appreciate you being willing to share a little bit of your your life experience. It's it's tough and you're a survivor and mm-hmm. and we're so thankful to have you in community. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. This podcast was produced by Karina Berry. Our series editors were Denise Cooper and Cliff Dahlberg. Music was composed by Big Cats. And this podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division. For more information, please visit the CASHU website at cascw.umn.edu. Thank you for listening and stay well, everyone.